In this first episode of Education, we have a special opportunity to hear from someone who is majorly involved in the Jewish education world as the dean of Azraeli, the graduate school where most Jewish educators attend. I personally had the pleasure to attend Azraeli and gain so much from Dr. Novik's leadership there. In addition, Dr. Novik is a sought-after lecturer and is known for her work on bullying and for really understanding children and how to best help them. In my previous school, Dr. Novik was once brought in as a, uh, for a professional development day, and I remember sitting there and feeling that not only was her presentation incredible and insightful for my classes and so practical, but there were so many things that I wanted to use in my home as a parent, making Dr. Novik an amazing person to kick off the podcast with. You're going to hear some amazing ideas about empowerment and tools and, and really practical tools that, that you know really can help as both as an educator, as parents, and uh, really some very interesting takes on, you know, what, what, what is lacking in the Jewish educational world, um, you know, more talking about Kavod and, you know, the best piece of advice that she, she's received or that, she's, that she would give, and many other amazing and insightful points that uh, really are amazing for all parents and educators alike. So uh, let's get into the episode. Welcome to Jeducation. My name is Yair Manchel. Jeducation, where parenting and Jewish education merge to give our children the best possible experience. Whether you chose to be an educator by profession or not, we are all Jewish educators. Day in and day out in our own homes, we are educating our children on what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be a good person. And sometimes, perhaps even most of the time, the education that children receive in their homes is more impactful than the formal education they receive in school. Check us out at jeducation.org today, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Rona Novik. Dr. Novik is the Dean of the Azraeli Graduate School of Jewish Education and Administration at Yeshiva University, and holds the Rain and Stanley Silverstein Chair in Professional Ethics and Values. She holds an appointment as Associate Clinical Professor of Child Psychology at North Shore Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Dr. Novik also serves as the co-educational director of the Hidden Sparks program, providing consultation to day schools and yeshivas. She is recognized for her expertise in behavior management and child behavior therapy and has publicly published scholarly articles on school applications of behavior management, children and trauma and bully prevention schools. She has delivered numerous presentations and national and international conferences focusing on her research, interest in parenting and parent-school partnerships, child anxiety disorders, social-emotional learning, and the behavior and development of young children. She's also the author of a book for parents, Helping Your Child Make Friends, and the editor of book series, Kids Don't Come With Instructional Manuals, as well as a children's book, Mommy, Can You Stop the Rain? I want to thank Dr. Novik for taking the time out of her extremely busy schedule to meet with me and talk education. It's my pleasure. Really appreciate it. So uh, first I want to start off, I want to really want to get right into what exactly prompted you or what inspired you to shift your professional focus from psychology to Jewish education? So it's interesting. It's not really a shift because as a psychologist, I was always interested almost exclusively in working with children. And I realized very early in my clinical psychology career that children come with other environments attached to them. Their family and their school are the two primary environments that influence them. And I realized that I was not going to be very effective in helping children change their lives if I wasn't also connecting with those very important parts of their lives. I will say that probably the most um, powerful impetus for making a shift to education was the frustration with the medical model that basically has children fail and experience pain and distress and suffering in order to get access to services. Mm, you know, I would see children in our clinical programs and offices after they'd experienced years of school failure and years of pain and suffering in their school settings. And I really believed, and I still believe, that schools can and should be places of growth and of promoting health and well-being. And so I shifted my focus from working on the problems after they arose to working with schools in how do we prevent problems by creating learning environments that are 
not only not toxic, but are actually growth promoting. Wow. And the, the, the ability to do that within my community, within the Jewish community, within the Jewish paradigms where, you know, we're talking during the Aseret Yemei Tshuva when our essential belief in the ability of all human beings to grow and change is in the forefront of our minds. But it's such a Jewish concept. So being able to do that in the field of Jewish education was nothing short of a dream. That's amazing. That's so special. What would you say is your 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 most important focus as a as a Jewish educator? Um, I, I think it's it's empowerment. It's the giving whoever your constituent is at the moment, whether that's educators, whether that's administrators, whether that's parents, or whether that's students, it's giving those individuals the tools that will allow them to succeed. Um, I have a blog. It's called Life's Toolbox. Hmm. And it's called that because... Everyone should check it out. Check it out. Yes, Make sure you, you should check out. out Life's Toolbox. Um, and I started writing it because um, my dad came into my house. My dad, Allah Shalom, um, came into my house when I was trying to fix the wire on an, on a, um, an alarm, a window alarm. And I was doing it with a butter knife. And he said, you know, Rona, they make a tool for that. It's called a wire stripper. My dad was an industrial arts teacher and a carpenter, and he had a, a garage filled with every tool you could imagine. And he said, you know, Rona, everything in life is easier if you have the right tools. Wow, that's very deep. And, and I believe that whether I'm working again with students or teachers or administrators or parents, if I give you the tools then you're going to be better at what you do and you're going to feel better about your ability to do it. And I, I think that's the start of all the important changes that need to happen in, in Chinuch and in other areas as well. Wow. So what, what are some of those tools that when you're talking about tools? Um, a, a big one is, you know, reflective practice is being able to own your responsibility for what happens and what could happen which means when something doesn't happen the way it should, really looking at yourself and your own practice and saying, well, what could I do differently? And again, that's whether I'm a parent or a student or an educator or administrator, not saying, you know, who do I point my finger at and who do I blame for this? But rather, what role did I play in this happening in this way? And what role could I play in it happening in a different way? And, and I really think that is a critical skill for success. I think being able to look at, um, and I, I think it's a skill for success in almost every field, being able to look at what you do as if it's, you're a mini scientist experiment. You know, you're, you're trying to figure out, here's this problem. What solutions have I tried? What worked? What didn't work? How do I tweak it? How do I make the changes? Um, I, I think that's a really important strategy and tool to have in our toolbox all the time. Wow. Yeah, that's especially like you were saying in the Aseret Yemei Tshuva, it's, it's such a fitting, fitting concept. How would, how would parents go about helping their children to process that? And especially younger children, how would, they, how would that conversation go? So, you know, it, I, it's wonderful that I don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are millions of web pages on teaching children problem solving and how you can develop these skills in children. There are acronyms like the SODAS approach and the RULER approach for all kinds of social emotional learning paradigms. But problem solving and, and engaging children around this at any age is basically starting with what happened? What did you do? What are the other possible alternatives you could have chosen? Let's predict, well, what would have happened if you didn't grab your classmate's pencil and if you ask nicely and what would happen if you raised your hand and waited to be called on and, you know, looking at those um, cause and effect questions and being able to predict, will a three-year-old be as competent and as able to generate alternatives as a 13-year-old? No, but you can engage any age child in beginning to reflect on what they did. One really important caution for parents is particularly with young children, but it's even true up through the teen years. 
our ability to be reflective is inversely related to how recently we've been caught with our hand in the cookie jar. You know, to ask a a two-year-old, did you take those cookies as they're standing with the hand in the cookie jar? The answer is always going to be, no, no, I didn't do it, (laughs) even though we know they did it. So sometimes the only way to engage children in this kind of problem-solving and reflective practice is another important parenting and education tool, patience. It doesn't all have to be done in the moment. You get endless do-overs, wait for the right moment, and then teach the lesson of reflection. That's great. All of the educators and the Rabbanim who, I'm, who I've been meeting with to talk to them about education and all had the same reaction, all the same reaction. They, they were so excited to hear about it and they were happy to be a part of it because they feel like there's such a major need in our community. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think there is such a, a need that's not necessarily being f- filled right now or being met right now in terms of parenting, advice, and Jewish being a Jewish educator, both in the house and outside of the house? I, you know, it's funny to say that the need isn't being met. Uh, you know, Azrieli Graduate School is the largest program in the nation that provides education and support to aspiring Jewish educators, but there are many others that do it as well. Again, the web explodes with parenting advice from Jewish and secular sources, And there's no shortage, you know, Zoom has taught us. You can attend Shurim from anywhere in the world and hear parenting and and education experts from everywhere. So on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of talk. I don't know that kind of cutting through that to the wisdom is so easy. And some of the noise conflicts. You hear on Tuesday, do X, and on Wednesday you hear, don't do X, do Y instead. And, And I think that is difficult. The other piece that I will say is that I think that Jewish education is the hidden jewel, the unrecognized jewel in our communities. I do not think people are giving the kavod and the recognition that is due to the professionals in the Jewish education field who are taking the time to learn their craft and to hone it and to be and a great influencer in the lives of children. I think we have to think really carefully what we say at our Shabbat tables in front of children about our rebbeim and our morot, about our administrators, and about our schools. Because I, there's no question in my mind, Rav Sachs, Zechar Sadiq Levracha said so many times to build a nation, you need education. To build a people, you need education. To continue the Jewish people on its journey, we need chinuch. We need Jewish education. And I wish we recognized in myriads of ways, not just with kavod, but with fiscal support, I wish we recognized what a critical enterprise this is in our communities. I don't think there's anything as important. Why do you think that is that people don't recognize it or there's that lack of kavod? I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, the world goes in cycles and the days of thinking of, wow, someone was a, you know, was a malamed and that was an amazing thing. I think access makes, puts learning at everyone's fingertips. And so it's mm. tempting to think that anybody could be a teacher. But, you know, we all can watch surgery online but I'm not letting my child be cut open by (laughs) someone who is just doing internet surgery. I'm going to demand professional preparation and, and, and we're willing to um, support the years and the time that it takes to hone the craft of a surgeon. I, I don't know why we go cheap on preparing Jewish educators. I, I know that, you know, the a Jewish lifestyle has a high price ticket, but there is no greater investment than our children. And we can't afford to skimp here. Definitely agreed. Definitely agreed. One of the main goals of education is to help everyone realize that we're all Jewish educators because in our own homes, we are, whether, whether we realize it at every moment in our house, in our homes, we are teaching our children. Jewish values. And that's, that's the whole idea behind your education. 100%. And, and uh, I think Shem Shomra Hirsch has a wonderful 
few pages in Horeb where he talks about the fact that you you can't outsource this. Mm-hmm. If you think I'm dropping them off at the building and I'll pick them up at four and they'll become Jews, it doesn't work that way. Right. It has to be a partnership between exactly. school and home. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. What, how do you think schools and, and homes can create a, a better partnership? So it's interesting. I think that, you know, Zoom has given us and and this horrible pandemic that we are surviving uh, and and not without cost and loss and trauma. But this horrible pandemic has given us a window into each other's worlds and lives that we didn't have before. And I hope that one of the things that is not lost after, please God, Bimhe Rabbi Amenu, we are all back in our regular routines. Uh, I hope we will not lose that awareness and respect for each other's challenges. I think that that schools need to realize that in many families with two working parents or one working parent, that you have to have reasonable expectations with what you send home, what you expect parents to do, how you expect them to support their students, and what help you give parents so they can do that. Mm. You know, if you send me home homework that I can't read the ditto, I don't know what you're asking, I don't understand the instructions, and I can't facilitate the student's success. Um, In the same way, I think families got a window into, you know, in those first weeks of Zoom schooling, you were just hearing (laughs) all over the internet, oh my gosh, I can't believe what teachers do. It's amazing. I'm seeing how they're engaging my students on Zoom and how much work goes into each lesson. And whoa, I had no idea. Um, Unfortunately, I think that that awareness is eroding. And I think we need to remind ourselves all the time that we don't know what's going on in the world, in each other's worlds, and we have to respect that. And we have to um, also listen. I think schools have an incredible source of information if they listen to parents. What would be helpful? What would you like the school to offer? And I think that parents have could learn so much again, by being open and listening to what schools have to offer and what they suggest and recommend. Hmm. Open communication, I think, is important. Okay, that's great. As the dean of Azraeli, what, do you, what, do you, what are the qualities that you look for in a successful, successful Jewish educator? I would say I look for passion, but I have yet to interview someone who doesn't have it. It's, it's one of the joys of my job. If I'm ever, if anyone is ever feeling low or despairs about the future of the Jewish people, just come and do entrance interviews for Israeli <laughs> graduate school. It will perk you right up uh, because I, I meet the future of Jewish education. I meet the future leaders of our Jewish communities, and they will blow you away with their passion and their commitment with their drive, with their love of Torah and their love of the Jewish lifestyle. What I what I look for is an openness to being a lifelong, lifelong learner and a willingness to be transformed by the experience of teaching and learning. You know, we have a tagline at Azraeli, we say, it's where teaching is sacred, where learning transforms. Um, and I think learning transforms the teacher and the learner at the same time. So I'm looking for that kind of openness in our students. Um, but again, I, I'm I'm very fortunate. It's rare that someone crosses our portals that doesn't meet those criteria. That's very special. What would be you? What would you say is the best advice that you received for being an educator or an educator one to a parent? That's a really good question. I'm going to go back partly to my dad, because from a very young age, uh, I'm the oldest daughter, I'm the oldest child, and uh, he opened his workshop to me. And he communicated that I could do anything with the right tools, with the right safety measures. You always had to wear your goggles. You couldn't touch the saws. You know, everything had rules and regulations. But he really inculcated in me a sense of possibility and belief in in every human being's growth potential. And I think that carrying that forward in the, you know, as a parent, you always have dark moments where you say, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to get my child through this? 
having a growth mindset, what I call the developmental mindset, reminding yourself that the way they are at this moment in time is not how they will forever be. The child at one point did not walk. And then for most of our children, we are blessed. They stand up and they walk the day they become readers. Oh my gosh. It's magical. One moment language didn't make most sense to them, make sense to them. And now the written word literally takes them to new universes and opens, you know, endless doors and possibilities. But it's easy to despair on the third day, the fourth week, the fifth month that you're working on phonetic decoding <laughs> and reading that pasuk and, you know, learning the Shema. And it's hard. But you, you, my, my other, you know, paradigm, which goes along with it is you have to be hopeful. You have to be optimistic. You have to, oh, thank, and I always forget this because to me, it's like so central. And the key is relationship. Mm. The key is your human connection to your children or your students. Without that, nothing matters. You could be the biggest content area expert, the biggest Talmud Chacham, the biggest math maven. If you do not care about your students and if they don't feel you care about them, if they don't perceive that, if your children don't feel your unending love for them, then your ability to have the, the caring power of a parent or a teacher is greatly diminished. So investing in relationship, is it's worth every, every moment that you spend time investing in that relationship. How do you think parents and teachers constrict the balance between having that relationship, but still having the respect of either a student or even the respect of a child in, in, a, in a home? So I'm so glad you asked that because a relationship doesn't mean you're a pushover. It doesn't mean I do everything you want and I'm your buddy. Children will have buddies. Teenagers will have pals and BFFs. That is not your role as either an educator or a parent. There are going to be times that in that relationship, you are largely unpopular, that you are the worst teacher in the world or the meanest parent in the whole neighborhood. That's okay. It's part of your job. Be the grown up. You can take it. It's not about um, um, winning a popularity contest and being loved. If you want to be respected, give respect and earn respect, and it will come to you. And people who are respected are people of integrity, people of their word, not parents who say, if you do that, then you're going to be punished. No, I promised you, I said, now, but you don't actually mm -hmm. follow through on whether it was a promise of, I'll play basketball with you, or a promise of, you can't play basketball tonight because you didn't do your schoolwork or whatever the, the consequences were in your home. But we have to be adults who follow through with their word, adults who are not hypocritical, who do not tell our children to be spiritual creatures, and yet they never see us take a moment to just be awestruck at Hashem's incredible world, or to daven, or to say our brachot with intensity and feelings of gratitude. If we want them to live lives of meaning, then we have to live lives of meaning too. Mm, those are such great points. In terms of that, I guess going, staying on that same topic, how do you help your students who are, you know, aspiring educators to be able to educate others on how to connect with Hashem? It's a really good question. Uh, one thing that, that I talk about all the time is, and I think it's Jose Lublin who, who says, you know, there's not one path to spirituality. For some, it will be learning. For some, it will be chesed. For others, it will be connecting to awe, nature. It's make, making sure that we recognize the individual nature of spirituality and of the relationship to Hashem. It's also recognizing that there are teachable moments that happen and we can capitalize on them, but we also can create teachable moments. We can facilitate. You know, it's hard to be spiritual in a hot, noisy room where the loudspeaker is interrupting every three seconds in the middle of morning chakras of davening. That, that's a hard spiritual moment. Out by the lake at Havdalah, camp, you know, camp does it so well because they create, they, they have the opportunity to craft 
these teachable moments of connection and of spirituality. How do you think parents can help craft those in their own homes? Yeah, I, I think we have to we have to look for them and bracket them. We have to say, let's just take a moment. Let's just take a moment. Do you do you see those flowers there? Do you know that they close up every night and they open up every morning? Isn't isn't it amazing how our world works? Isn't it just amazing? They have to say, you know what? It's thundering outside. My my children's book is about a storm. Um, it's not in the book, but you know, let's say the bracha. Let's mm. say the bracha for thunder and lightning, because even those things that are scary are part of Hashem's world, and it's bringing rain and it's making my flowers grow. And let's be thankful for them. We we have to look for those opportunities and create those opportunities. And the other thing is, we have to stop being afraid of talking about God. Mm. We have to be willing with our teens at the table to say, what do you believe? I mean, here we are, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. What do you think? What do you think about God's role in the world? Do you think that people are afraid of it because they're... It's, I'll tell you, even as an educator and a child psychologist, it's terrifying. Right, because we don't necessarily... <laughs> uh, you know what? But, but my granddaughter at six asks questions that are terrifying about God. But... We can't be terrified, and it's okay not to have the answers. Right. What is more important, particularly to teenagers, is your willingness to listen to their questions. They don't want to be shut down. They want to be heard. They want to know that we are in a religion of a suffolk. We're in a religion of machloket. We're not a papal religion where there's one central authority. Right. Jews are really good at disagreeing, at being uncertain and unsure, at having doubts and questions. We, we are. I mean, our Gemara exists in mm -hmm. questions. Yeah. Um, it's okay to have questions, to wonder, to ask about things. And a part of our job as educators and as parents is creating the safe space for those questions. Hmm. These are such great points. I'd like to take a break from this episode to thank our sponsor, Jump Into Shape. Jump Into Shape is really an incredible way to work out from the comfort of your home using weighted ropes. Really, it, it's, it's, there's so many options for live classes where your class instructor will, instructor will train you, teach you how to do it, really guide you and push you. And there's recorded classes. So you can really do it at your own time. I personally benefited tremendously from jumping, from jump roping with Jump Into Shape. And uh, I would strongly advise checking it out. You can check them out at jumpintoshape.fun. And they're also having a special promo right now where you can jump into shape for free for one month. So definitely make sure to check that out. I will post their information to the website. And uh, without further ado, let's get back to the episode. What would be the best advice that you would give to either an aspiring educator, which I'm sure you do all the time, or to either new parents or even seasoned parents? Um, fall in love with your children or your students over and over and over again. Find something adorable endearing in every student you meet or teach. If you don't, it's really hard to do your job well or to be a good parent. And then add to that a lot of patience. Know that you get more than one chance to do everything. And often you won't do it right the first time. It's okay. You get more do-overs. You know, children will not listen to you more than once. Children will... <laughs> you know, not do their homework more than once. You'll get another chance to do it right. Um, and believe in yourself. Believe in yourself and, and that you matter. You make a difference in the life of a child. Mm. So true. If you could change one thing in the educational system, what would it be? Oh, gosh. It could be more than one. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I would I would have teachers paid the way that, you know, high-tech innovators are paid. Um, mm. you know, I would, I would pay the people who are dealing with our most precious resource paid like they're dealing with our most precious resource. And that would, that, that would, you know, trickle down to then they would get all of the training and support. I would add mentorship in, in an ongoing way. Um, you know, being trained as a psychologist in addition to the equivalent of student teaching, which was a, a clinical internship, 
it was very common for people to continue their supervision, even as their career continued. Um, and that's less common. Teaching can be a very lonely profession. You go into your room, you close your door, and it's you and those 25 lovely faces. <laughs> and how do you know whether you're doing it right or not? How do you know who you're reaching and who you're not? And and it's wonderful if you have the opportunity for ongoing learning and growth and mentorship. Um, but I think the other thing I would change about education is I would make the the goal, the end goal, the part that we have the hardest time measuring in the field of education in general. And this is true, secular world, and especially in the secular world where we have standardized tests that measure reading and arithmetic. We have no test for Menschlichkeit. Mm. We don't test your humanity. And because we don't test for it, schools don't have it as a chiyuv to teach it. In the Jewish world of Chinuch, we're better off because we don't, we answer to the higher authority and we know that Menschlichkeit and humanity is the goal of Chinuch. We know that creating Torah Jews who can live a Torah life is the goal of Chinuch. It's not book knowledge. You could get 8,000 points on a test if you can't be a decent, menschlichkeit human being who lives Alpi Torah. And, and I, by that, I mean really the spirit of what Torah is about, ben Adam la Chavero and ben Adam la Makom. Then what's the point of Chinuch? Hmm. Um, and I, I live for the day when that is the central focus of everything we do. It's a challenge. It's really I don't have the I don't have the answer, because I know that to live a Torah life I also need to know the Shema, and I need to be able. We just finished Yom Tov davening, and I need to be able to make sense of what I'm saying on Yom Tov as I daven. And to learn that, it takes a lot of time of my school day, and I need the content area knowledge, and I need to know the story of Avram and Yitzchak and Avram Yishmael. I, I need to have all that knowledge. Where do I fit in all of the other things that we need in our school day? Um, and I think partly we do that by getting smarter about what we teach, how we teach, um, and, and it's an, an ongoing evolution. What are other ways that schools can help meet that need? Because I agree with you, it's such a huge need, but it's not really being touched on so much. I, Sometimes I, with programming yeah. a little bit. But right, right. Outside um, of programming. I, I think when I say what we teach and how we teach, I really think, um, I use the term double dipping. I feel like everything we do in a Jewish day school has to do at least two things. So if I'm if I'm teaching a particular parsha or a particular group of pesukim, I want to be ob obviously teaching the skills of decoding chumash and of a pasuk and of reading Hebrew. But I also want to be teaching ben adam l'chavero or spirituality mm. or the midah of chesed. And and I think that will that may require us thinking very seriously and making hard choices about do we teach Shoftim the book or do we teach a curriculum that is more thematic or do we teach part of Shoftim? We we have a tradition in the Orthodox and modern Orthodox world of you know you teach a sefer and you make a seum and that's really a focus on the content in elementary schools in middle schools and maybe even in high schools. I don't know if we need to think about our curricular decisions in more economical ways of mm -hmm. what am I getting out and of teaching this right. safer to this group of students at this point right. in what time. Are they gonna, what are they going to gain right. from this? Right. right. Totally hear that. How can educators and parents best meet the social emotional needs of their students and children? As a psychologist, I'm sure you can talk a lot about this. So it also, it's, it's, Part of it is is what you teach. I, you know, I'm working with one school that is actually going to be teaching units on what is a friend, middle school, hmm. what, and what is not a friend, and um, undoing some of the technology-infused and popular um, media-infused concepts of what friendship is and is not with a more healthy perspective on friendship. So there's the direct teaching of content that helps children with their social skills. But then there's the process of how do you assign groups in your classroom? 
How do people respond when someone in your class makes a mistake at the board? All of those are opportunities to teach how we get along with each other, how we treat each other, and all of the social skills that we need to not only succeed in life, but to be the good people that we're meant to be. Hmm. So interesting. And, and by the way, parents, we're doing this all the time. You know, we are, you know, we, we go to somebody's house and we say to our children, please say thank you to the hostess and please. And, and we coach our children before we go somewhere and after we go somewhere and we process and those are wonderful um, things. I think actually another way that parents can deal with social issues and teach social skills very well is using material outside your child's life, like a book they're reading. Make a mother-daughter or father-daughter or father-son or mother-son, grandpa-daughter, uh, granddaughter book club and read the same book and talk about how are these characters relating to each other? Do people talk like that in the real world? What do you think about that? Is that a nice way to deal with someone? Watch a TV show together or a video or a movie together. Stop the action and talk about, wow. Such an interesting idea. Wow. That was really hurtful. It, it has the benefit of because it's removed from reality, you can have really open and frank discussions. And children and teens will be very honest about what they think about the way uh, characters in novels and on TV act with each other because it's not, it's not personal. It's not them. There's no risk of them saying, um, are, are, you're not going to like me, mom or dad or teacher, because I did that. Interesting. Right. It makes it much less personal. Correct. What about, so in terms of when a child is acting out and it's, it, might be personal, might not be personal. How can a parent best deal or react to a, a child who's acting out and help guide them to getting back to a place of better, I guess, equilibrium or, you know, we're in a, they're in a better state. So, I mean, acting out is such a broad and vague <laughs> term. I have no idea, you know, what that means. Does it mean that they're, you know, calling out in class or that they threw a chair at the teacher uh, because you're going to respond very differently depending on what the acting out is. But one of the things that is is so important in parenting, in education as well, is there's a response to a situation when it happens and then there's processing the situation and making it a teachable moment. If your child is going to run in the street or touch a stove a hot stove. You don't have a discussion about safety at that point. You just say loudly, no, and you grab that child back onto the curb where you pull their hand away from the hot stove. You know, a child who is disruptive in a class, you may need in that moment to excuse that child or to use whatever strategies you use that are appropriate in, in your school, in your classroom, in your home to keep everyone safe. Interesting. It's after that happens that you can sit down with a child and say, what was going on there? Hmm. You know, usually you don't crumple up your paper when you make a mistake and throw it away. So something, there must've been something going on. And uh, it always amazes me that, um, I, I think some teachers and parents are natural at having conversations with children and, and others. I once had a teacher ask me if it was okay for her to ask a student if they, what name they preferred to be called, a nickname or a regular name. And it's like, well, of course it's okay. <laughs> right. Why wouldn't it be okay? Well, I didn't know if I could ask them that. Yes. You know, engaging, it goes back to what I said earlier about empowerment, that ideally we, parents and educators, we do not want to be the ones helping our children or getting our children to control their out of control behavior. Our goal is for them to control their out-of-control behavior. Mm. Our goal is self-control. We don't get that if we don't have a dialogue with them. If we do it to them, they don't learn anything. If we do it with them and with their understanding and while empowering them to know, you know, when I get, um, when I do poorly on math, I get very, very worried and because I really want to be good in math, because I want to be in the math club or I want to do, then, then I get really, really upset. 
And now we can sit down and figure out, well, what could we do when that happens so you don't throw your paper across the room? Because mm. I we, we we know now that there's a there's a trigger and there's a response. And now we can problem solve about ways we could deal differently. But if we don't have the conversation, then I'm doing it to you and you don't learn anything about yourself. Right. It's like what you said before about giving them the tools. Exactly. Right. That's great. And how do what about confidence? How do you instill children with confidence? It's like such a hard, intangible, but so they, again, everything I, they... I think that you know one of the problems that I see in the the parenting pendulum swings from time to time. You know, mm. in the fifties with Doctor Spock, and then it went you know sixty parenting and seventies, and I think that parenting right now has swung to a lot of helicopter and permissive parenting and a notion of well, I can't tell my child no because they'll be unhappy. Right. Um, I, I think that if we do everything for our children, if we take away every stumbling block, if when your child comes home from school and says, this test is too hard, you call the school and get permission for them to be exempt, then your child never develops confidence because they've never had to manage a hurdle themselves. If on the other hand, we raise our children to say, yeah, I, I hear you. Validation's really important. I hear you. I know you're really worried about this test. Tell you what, let's figure out how we study together. It You may not do great. I know this is not your best subject. I know you're very worried about it and the nervousness is going to get in the way. Whatever happens, I'm going to be with you. We're going to deal with this. But let's get in there and do that. Let's make study dates this week. You need a tutor. What do you need so we can help? facilitate your growth and your ability to handle this, now you build confidence. And and we say to kids, you got this. My money's on you. And the other thing is we tell them the developmental perspective. We tell them, you know, you may not remember this, but there was a day you couldn't read. And now you read. We didn't know the day before you got it. We didn't know that the next day you'd be a reader. Mm. We have no idea tomorrow could be the day that you actually do better on this test than you thought, that you actually know some of this. And if not, maybe it'll be the next day, maybe the next week. But every day you're growing, every day you're changing. We got to keep at it. My money's on you. And how do you deal with their, I guess, shot to their confidence when they come home and they say, we, we did everything we studied, we did a great. And then, you know, they just didn't get that grade that they wanted. So um, I'll tell you a story. Um, when my youngest son was learning to ride a bicycle, he was not one of these children who liked to make mistakes or to fall. And so the first time he fell off the bicycle, he threw the bike and said, I'm never riding a bike again. I'm Bikes are stupid. I don't need to ever ride a bike. Well, we live in a neighborhood where you need to ride a bike. Mm -hmm. Everybody rides a bike. It's a social faux pas if you don't. And I, I had just a parenting psychologist epiphany in that moment. And I said, oh, Oh, I'm so sorry. I totally forgot about the falling. I didn't tell you about the falling, did I? He says, what do you mean? Tell me about the falling. I fell. I'm stupid. Bikes are stupid. I'm never riding a bike again. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. I didn't tell you that the proprioceptive neurons in the brain need you to fall a lot of times so the motor strip can get the proprioceptive. And I'm making it all up. <laughs> I'm making up cortical neuron stimulation and falling and proprioceptive balance. And I said, the bottom line is, like, you have to, when you're riding, learning to ride a bike, you have to fall like five times between here and the corner to get your brain used to the balance of the bike. And you didn't fall enough. He said, five times? <laughs> I said, well, if you do three, that would be okay. <laughs> and and from that day on, whenever he fell, and he fell many times, it was, did I fall good? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it's, we, we have to not make failure acceptable we have to make failure a critical and essential component of learning mm. so that when we send our child who was worried about the test to school saying, my money's on you, you're going to do the best you can. And, and whatever you do, we're going to learn from it. We're going to grow from it. This is information that's going to go in the hopper. It's going to help us next time. So do your best, you know, it's mm. going to be fine. It's like Chevalier Poltsadik would come. You have to teach yep. them that, right? Yep, absolutely. It's great. It's really great. And there are, you know, the I think the Olympics gave us great examples. I think mm, that yeah. you can look at, I, you know, 
being the mother of sons and learning a lot about baseball. I know I was stunned when I realized that a, a hitter who has an average of 33 is considered amazing. <laughs> I said, so one out of three times he does what he's supposed to do and that's good, you know? So, um, they're, it's a great analogy. yeah, we have to really, you know, realize that in life mistakes are very much a part of the process of learning. Mm. So true. I want to get back to your book in a second, but besides for your book, are there any either educational books or parenting books that you would recommend? Obviously, your book and yeah, you know, of course, for sure. <laughs> no, we'll get back my to book's that. not. It is, but it is not a parenting book. It's very specific. But um, I happen to love the Piazetsna Rebbe's book, Chovas um, HaTalmidim. The beginning section is not written to the Talmidim, to the students. It's written to educators, and you could really read it as a parent. Um, and I believe that his call to action to see the potential in every student and also to not blame a generation of students for what they need and who they are being different from what the prior generation, you know, we do this every year. We say, oh, sixth graders nowadays, they're not what they used to be. <laughs> right? doesn't matter. Our job is to teach the sixth graders we have now. It's to raise the children in this world that we have now. And by the way, I do not envy parents or educators now because we are living in a hard time to raise children. And there are lots of lots of, of challenges that uh, parents face that did not exist 20, 25 years ago. Right. Well, Piazza and Rebbe is a great example. Right. He was talking from the, the 30s. Right. <laughs> and yeah. during the, you know, the horrible, yeah, exactly. what they were the going Holocaust. through. Is, right. Right. Um, but um, other, you know, books for educators, Brené Brown, Parker Palmer, Viktor Frankl's The Search for Meaning, Man's Search for Meaning. These are the books that I look to. And believe it or not, like my favorite quote in the world is from the kind of children's book, The Allegory, The Little Prince, mm. where at one point the little prince says to the pilot, what is essential is invisible to the eye. Mm. You have to look with your heart. You have to teach with your heart. You have to parent with your heart. Don't leave your seichel at the door. You know, you need you need wisdom, but it it is a labor of love always. And you have to be the grown up always. You have to put aside your feelings, your needs, and in the moment say, what what would a grown-up do in this moment? I, you know, they're having a fit. I, I'm not going to calm them down if I have a fit. Right, I have to right. stay calm. Hmm, that's a great point. So let's talk about your book a little bit. How did you, how did this book come about? Oh, wow. I can't believe that this coming Shabbos is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, right? right yeah. And that's when I started thinking about this book because I was working with first responders and children of first responders, and I was in schools after 9-11. And what I saw was that adults had gotten afraid to reassure children. Hmm. The world seems so turned upside down and tentative that simple questions like, are you coming home for dinner? Would Parents would be like a deer in headlights. I don't know how to answer that, thinking about all those parents who did not make it home. Right. And yet, I think one of the critical roles of parents and educators is to make the world safe for children, to help them believe and feel safe in a world that sometimes is not the most friendly of worlds and, you know, can raise all kinds of concerns and anxieties. And so I thought about how do I help parents learn the language of reassurance? And I wrote a children's book called Mommy, Can You Stop the Rain? about a little girl who's afraid in a rainstorm. And her parents who use all their tools like distraction and like humor and like validation and caring. And most importantly, most important tool of all, they just are there for her through the storm and through the rain until the sun comes out. And you can't make it up, but on April Fool's Day, in the midst of a global pandemic, after years of writing, rewriting, back and forth, a publisher, Berman House, Apples and Honey Press, published it. It became a PJ Library selection mm. this April. Wow, cool. And I think as wonderful as it was for me to write the book, the letters, I just got an email from an alumni who said, it's my son's favorite book. He knows it by heart. 
We read it every single night, and it's just such a reassuring book for him. Wow, that's so special. Um, those those kind of things really make it all worthwhile. Yeah, and yeah. book number two is sitting at the publisher oh, right now okay. and in its editing phase for probably a year and a half from now. It okay. will be out. Sounds good. Okay, stay posted, everyone. Yeah. Stay posted. And more, I hope. And uh, is, it's it's I love writing, so that's amazing. And is this book meant to be it's a children's book, but it's geared towards parents. In it's a, a children's book, but it's meant to be read aloud. It's written at a toddler age. But interestingly, when the pandemic started, I developed lesson plans because it's really about how you deal with anxiety and how you manage life's worries. So I wrote, they're free on my on my uh, website. They're I wrote free lesson plans for teachers at all grade levels of ways you could use the book, even in high school, to work with students around how do we understand worries and reassurance. Hmm. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. I'm gonna I'll make sure to post your link on the, on sure. the website. Amazing. What would you say is your take on children and teens' access to technology? So you know, pre Zoom, we were all. <laughs> we were all trying to disconnect and, and, you know, like decrease right screen that, that, time. And, right. and, and we know, you know, it's, it's such a great example of how you have to think about context. So in a world without Corona, where you can play outdoors with your friends versus sit at home and play alone on a video game, of course, playing outdoors with your friends is a healthier option. You can be in the classroom and learn in an interactive way with peers and educators. Great. So much better than sitting at home and looking at a screen. But guess what? You know, pandemic hit. And Screens have been a saver, well, a savior for some families and for some communities. They certainly have allowed me to connect with with schools and educators and parents around the world from the comfort of my dining room table many, many days and nights this past year and a half. I think that in the exact same way that I wouldn't want a child whose diet exclusively consisted of pasta. I don't want a child whose only social outlet, whose only play whose only creativity, whose only learning and living is done online through technology. You want a varied diet. That's the healthier approach. And yet there are 100%, there are students who have flourished learning on Zoom, much more than in the classroom. Some shy and anxious students have done much better learning on Zoom where they have time to think about their answers where they don't feel on the spot in a classroom, right, right, where true. they feel more socially comfortable. Um, so we have to think very carefully as we, again, hopefully approach <laughs> a return to being able to visit the people, the places we love, to be out and about with whoever we want. But I hope that we've learned the lesson to not take such broad brushstrokes and say, it's all bad or it's all good. Uh, we have to really look to the science. I, I am first and foremost a researcher mm -hmm. and I I can't wait to see the data that comes out about how this has impacted children's learning, children's minds. I also think we can and we will learn how to use technology better as a learning tool as time goes on. I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time today you are such an insightful person and such an insightful educator and a parent. I, I know your children. And uh, it's really, su it's been such a pleasure to hear and pick your brain on these important topics. And I know that the, the Jewish world will be, will be better for us. So thank you so much again. Thank you for listening.